Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I met a man a number of years ago who had gone into the Soviet Union before its collapse. He had ridden on a train, and he had met a man on that train. The man he met on that train was a pastor in the former Soviet Union. Because communism did everything it could to squash Christianity, the only part of the Bible this pastor had was the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And for 10 years, he had been preaching in his church out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. That's all he had. That's all his people knew for 10 years. He had mined the depths of the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And then this man gave him a Bible. And this pastor realized for the first time that there is so much more than just 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, which is a great chapter. And he began to thumb through the pages of the scriptures and he wept. I wonder, when's the last time you even read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? If you didn't have a Bible, would you miss it? Do you come to church without one? Is it important to you? You have one, but do you read it? Do you study it? Do you delve into it? Oh, we, we live in a society where we would not think about missing an episode of Lost, but we have lost our way because we don't know how to spend a day with God. We wouldn't think about missing 24 because we want to know every hour of Jack Bauer's life. But we can't spend one hour with God in a whole week. We would never think about not answering our email or answering those 150 text messages we get every day. And some of you are even doing now. But we think nothing about the fact that God wrote a book in blood to share his story. And yet every day it just sits on a table somewhere unopened, unused, neglected. The prophet Amos said there's coming a day when there's going to be a famine in the land, not a famine for bread, but a famine for the word of God. And I believe that we live as much as we'd like to think that we're a Christian nation and tens of millions of people will be in churches today, I believe we live in a biblically illiterate nation. I guarantee you that I could go and find a member of a church in Brazil today or a member of the church in underground China today and they could embarrass almost everyone in this room by their passion for the Word of God as compared to ours. 
We are passionate about what the stock market is doing. We are passionate about our 401k. We are passionate about our kids' sports. We are passionate about everything in the world but the one thing that's going to go to heaven. The only things that are going to be in heaven are people in the Word of God. That's it. And whatever you're passionate about that's not going with you to heaven, you need to get over that passion and get you a new one. Because God's Word has something to say to you about life and about living. It has something to say to you about how you are to live your life and to stand and to make decisions. Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Psalm 74 and verse 9, we are given no miraculous signs. No prophets are left and none of us knows how long this will be. I would suggest to you that if you want to know how to live life, then however you get your news, whether it's in a newspaper or on the internet, however you get your news, you get your news in one hand and you put your Bible in the other hand. And I promise you, the Bible has something to say today about what's happening today. It's got an answer. It's got a promise. It's got a hope. There's something in the Word of God that will deal with every situation and every crisis that is going on in the world today. God has something to say to us. The pundits don't have it. They change according to what's going on in the culture. The politicians don't have it. They change if it's an election year. Not all preachers have it, but this book has it. And when we look at this book and when we study this book and when we see what God has said to us in these 66 books, when we see the message that is given to us of a holy God who loves unholy people, of a God who loved us so much that people could walk across this platform and give testimony of changed lives. Listen, that doesn't happen by trying harder. That doesn't happen by turning over a new leaf. That doesn't happen by making a New Year's resolution. The only way that we change is from the inside. And when this book gets in us, it does something in us through the power of the Holy Spirit that no other book can do. I've got signed copies of every book John Grisham's ever written, first edition copies. I tell my girls, when you sell my library, make sure you look for the signed books because they'll be worth more than a dollar. But you know, I can read a John Grisham novel and forget about it. Characters change, story's always the same. I can read a lot of books about a lot of subjects. But there's one book that demands something of me. The only book I read that demands something of me is the Word of God. It demands that I adjust myself to it, not that it adjusts itself to me. And so when we look at our ignorance of the Word of God, I think we've got a problem. Our problem is we have a nominal belief about the authority and the power of the Word of God to change our lives. You say, well, I thought Jesus changed our lives. Listen, Jesus is the Word manifested in flesh. The Word is Jesus and Jesus is the Word. There's nothing in the Word inconsistent with Jesus. And Jesus always manifested the Word and lived out the Word and was the word. So when you and I look at the word of God, nominal belief's not going to get it, which means, you know, I, I, I kind of hold to this, but it's just in name only. There has to be a practical belief, which is a reality that determines your convictions, not just your opinions, but your convictions. 
how you live, the choices you make, the things you do, the things you don't do. Uh, there are all kind of lists out there, but I found one particularly interesting. John Boy and Billy are not my favorite people, but every now and then they have something funny. And they had a section on their program one morning called Bible Bloopers. And, and these were things that Christians and Jewish people said about the Bible. And the reason they're going to go up on the iMag is because some of the spelling helps you to understand how stupid some of God's people really are. Okay? Number one, in the first book of, Bi of the Bible, Guinness's World Records, <laughs> God got tired of creating the world, so he took the Sabbath off. Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. <laughs> Noah built the ark, which the animals came on in pairs. P-E-A-R-S. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. <laughs> Samson slated the Philistines. It says kill, but he, he slated the Philistines with the acts of the apostles. <laughs> Moses led the Hebrews to the Red Sea where they made unleavened bread, which is bread made without any ingredients. <laughs> the Egyptians were all drowned in the desert. Moses went up to Mount Sinai and got the Ten Amendments. The fifth commandment was humor thy father and mother. The seventh commandment was, thou shalt not admit adultery. <laughs> Moses died before he ever reached the United Kingdom. Then Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jericho. <laughs> the greatest miracle was when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed him. Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> When Mary heard she was the mother of Jesus, she sang the Magna Carta. <laughs> Jesus said, man does not live by sweat alone. The epistles were the wives of the apostles. St. <laughs> Paul cavorted to Christianity. He preached holy acrimony, which is another name for marriage. The Bible says a man is only supposed to have one wife. This is called monotony. <laughs> You know, those would be incredibly funny if they hadn't actually come out of people's mouths. People said this stuff. We know so little about the Word of God. We, you know, we criticize the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they killed Jesus. But, you know, those guys memorized the first five books of the Bible. There's a pastor in Birmingham that... I had a privilege of eating dinner with not long ago, and he's a young pastor, he's at like 32. He preached at an evangelism conference not long ago. He stood up and he quoted 
the first eight chapters of Romans without ever looking at his Bible and gave an invitation. Eight chapters of Romans memorized. Do we have a hunger for the Word of God? Do we, do we want to know what God says? Do you, know, do you want to be like the guy that died and went to heaven and, and uh, met Hezekiah and said, I never read your book? By the way, Hezekiah didn't write a book. And all the things that are in the Word of God, all the truth that is there, all the nourishment that is there for us, and, and we have an indifference to it. Here's the, here's the thinking of the culture today. And we talk about a Christian worldview. Here's the thinking of the culture. The, the culture thinks today that we have evolved and we're educated and the Bible was written to primarily an agricultural, lower-income, illiterate people. And so it really doesn't have anything to say to those of us who are educated and motivated and understand technology and own computers. It, it was fine for the day in which it was written but it doesn't really have much to say to us today. It doesn't, doesn't have much to speak to us today. It's irrelevant. It's outdated. Its stories are outdated. I would submit to you that the people that walked across this platform a few minutes ago would argue with that premise. It's not outdated. There are still stories in there that come alive, but this attitude permeates academia, higher education, science, medicine, and technology. I beg to differ. I think the Bible has more to say than we can possibly ever grasp. A.W. Tozer attacked this kind of thinking when he said the apostles and prophets were mistaken. This is what the critics say about the Bible. They had ideas that were good for their day, but not advanced for our day. We know more about ourselves, human motivation, and the nature of things than they did back then. While it certainly contains some beautiful poetry and some inspiring thoughts about human nature and the world in which we live, nevertheless, all this is to be understood and reinterpreted and reassessed and rethought. Hmm. Can I ask you something? If we're so advanced... How can we put a man on the moon and talk about putting people on Mars and we can't make downtown Albany safe to walk in? If we're so smart, how come psychiatrists and psychologists are making a killing off of people that don't know how to deal with life? If we're so smart, how did we evolve to tolerate child abuse and abortion and rape and murder if we're so smart how did we get in the mess we're in since we have become so enlightened in our age how did we get to such a situation where you worry about whether your kids can play outside or not and you want to know who the neighbors are, and you go online to check and see if there are any sexual predators in your neighborhood, of which there are several hundred in Darty County and Lee County. Since when did we get so smart that we think that this book doesn't have something to say in the, in the decadent world in which we live? That we think it could just be passed off as nice to read, 
got a few good stories, and we're familiar with a few of them, like the prodigal son and John three sixteen and some other things. But when it gets to studying the depths of the Scripture, we don't really get it. I believe we've been brainwashed into thinking that we're better when the Bible says we're lost and undone, when the Bible says we're without hope, when the Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sin, when the Bible says that we have lost our way, that we have turned to our wickedness, and yet the Bible also says that there's hope in Jesus Christ, that there's the power of the gospel to change people's life. The Bible teaches us that whoever believes in Christ will not be disappointed. See, I think the Bible has something to say to us. And I think we need to quit hiding it and worrying about it. And we live in a time when the Gideons can't put their Bibles in hospitals. Guess, guess what people need in hospitals? They need hope. They can't put them in schools. Oh, we can let... Kids watch movies in schools that would have embarrassed our parents. But we can't put a Bible in there just in case they might become good, decent kids by reading the Word of God. And so we have to have police officers in our schools now ready for violence and for crime because we don't want the Word of God to tell us how to act. Well, as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? We didn't have any police officers in school when I was growing up. I walked to school. My parents didn't worry if I was going to get there. Everybody on that street knew me, and I knew everybody on that street. Now, if I got in trouble at school, I was going to get in trouble when I got home. I wasn't going to have my dad go up to the principal and say, now, listen, my boy's a good boy. My dad had gone up and said, give me the board you hit him with and I'll slap him with it. You know? <laughs> Where did we lose our way? We lost our way because we lost our moral values and we lost our moral values because we lost our standard of absolutes, of what's right and wrong. See, you don't know right and wrong unless there's something that tells you what right is and what wrong is. And when black and white become dingy gray, everybody feels comfortable. When there's no, thus saith the Lord, then everybody says, well, anything goes. But this book gives us some clear principles on parenting, on our lifestyle, on our choices, on how we act in integrity, in our vocation. Every area of your life that you can imagine is covered in this book. How to live life abundantly. We need the Word of God. We've had a scientific revolution, an industrial revolution a technology revolution, a philosophical revolution, a social revolution, and a cultural revolution, I would submit it's time for a biblical revolution. There needs to be a revolution of desire and passion to say God has spoken and he has not stuttered. God has something to say to us, a word for us. God has given us his word. And I believe the time is ripe for a biblical revolution, for a movement of God across this country because people are reading and studying and, and texting and doing all these things, but they're not finding answers. And now's the time for us to say, there's a word from God. And God has something that he wants to say to us, and he has spoken clearly to us in his word. As one gentleman said, my guess is that our next great awakening will be among college students 
College students today are, spiritually speaking, the driest timber I have ever come across. Mostly, they know little or nothing about religion. Mostly, no one ever speaks to them about truth. Platitudes about diversity and tolerance and multiculturalism are thin gruel for intellectually growing people. You see, when there's a vacuum and a void, something's got to fill it. Something's got to take its place. And we don't need to apologize for believing that God's Word is God's Word. Listen, when you're right, don't apologize. And I, you know, it's okay if somebody says, well, I don't believe that. That's okay. They can be wrong. They have a right to be wrong. I have a right to be right. You say, well, that's arrogance. It's not arrogance because I wasn't there when God spoke, but God said he spoke. And so since he said he spoke and I wasn't there and nobody alive today was there to deny the fact that he spoke and these people wrote down that he spoke, I'm going to assume that he spoke and I'm going to go my stake my eternity on what this book says. Are you willing to stake your eternity on what the news pundits say? Are you willing to stake your eternity on CNN or Fox News or anybody else? Are you going to stake your eternity on that which says there's a heaven and a hell, there's a hope, there's a lostness and there's saved. There's nothing in between. We need to find out what we believe. We need to understand this word of God that he has given us. Spurgeon said, many books in my library are now behind and beneath me. They were good there in their way once. So were the clothes that I wore when I was 10 years old. But I've outgrown them. Nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. Deuteronomy 18, 18 says, I will put words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. Now think about the Bible. It was written over a 1500 year span by over 40 generations, 40 different authors of all kinds. Moses was a political leader trained in Egypt. Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua was a general. Nehemiah, a servant to the king. Daniel, the prime minister, Luke, a doctor, Solomon, a king, Matthew, a tax collector, and Paul, a Jewish rabbi. How in the world could people with that divergent of backgrounds come up with a book that has a consistent message unless God was in the middle of it over a 1,500-year period of time? All kinds of cultures are written in a variety of places. It was written in the wilderness. It was written in palace. It was written in prisons on the Isle of Patmos, on hillsides, in dungeons. It's written at different times, times of captivity, times of war, times of peace, and times of joy, and times of prosperity. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It is as diverse as any book ever written, yet it has one consistent message and theme. God loves the world, and he set out to redeem fallen man. Now, I have a satellite radio in my car. And I've got certain stations I like to listen to. But let let me tell you how satellite radio works. I'm not going to tell you technically because all I know how to do is push the on button. But here's how it's set. First of all, I have to turn it on. I cannot get in my car and say, oh, satellite radio, speak to me right now. It'll just sit there. I have to turn it on. Does everybody understand that? There's an on and off switch. I have to turn it on. 
You can have this Bible sitting on your coffee table or on your nightstand and walk by it every day and say, look, there's the Bible. There's the Bible. But you got to turn it on. You got to open it up. You got to look and see what it says. Not only do I have to turn it on, I have to get a clear signal. You see, when I pull into my garage, I get this little message that comes across acquiring signal, acquiring signal, acquiring signal. When I drive through a tunnel in the mountains, I get this little signal, acquiring signal, acquiring signal. Listen, when you go into a place where there's not a clear line for communication to take place, you're not going to hear anything. You have to get away and you have to get a clear signal between you and the author, between you and the Word of God, and open your mind up to see what God has to say to you. Let God speak to you, and then I have to set it to the right channel because I got all kinds of channels. I get in. I got in the car yesterday. I was up at a wedding north of Atlanta, and I got in the car, and, and my wife had been using my car, and she had it set to channel 77 Broadway. I quickly changed it. I usually either listen to the oldies station or I listen to the message and listen to praise music or I'm listening to one of the news channels depending on where I am and what time of day it is. But you got to set it to the right channel. You see, here's what's important. You can't read other books and then put them on top of this Bible and try to figure out what this Bible says. You have to read this book and then everything else you read and everything else you listen to, you filter through the grid of what this book says. Because this book stands in authority over all other books. So whatever anybody says, a a psychologist, a writer, a theologian, a novel writer, whatever, you don't take that book and put it on top of your Bible and say, I'm going to read this, then I'm going to read my Bible. And I'm going to find out if I believe what the Bible says. You see what the Bible says, and then everything else filters through the Word of God, and you begin to think and act in a way. Now, is that consistent with what God says I'm supposed to be and what God says I'm supposed to do? And you start making this your filter system for all that you listen to and you watch and things that get absorbed in your life. So... Let me give you a little list here, um, and this is not at the end, but uh, I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up. I want to give you four things that the Bible is. First of all, the Bible is a lamp. It's a lamp. Psalm 119, 105. It's a lamp. Psalm 119, 105. You're walking around in darkness. You're walking around in confusion. You're not sure about what you need to do, what decision you need to make, what job you need to take. You don't know how to how to deal with your kids. The Word of God is a lamp. It will light your path. Secondly, the Word of God is milk, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. You know, we hear that we need to take in calcium because it builds our bone. Your skeletal system needs good strength, and you need the calcium, the milk of the Word of God. The Word of God is milk. Thirdly, the Word of God is a sword, Ephesians 6.17. The Word of God is a sword, Ephesians six. In verse 17, you're in a battle every day. There are all kinds of voices crying out to get your attention. There are all kinds of philosophies that are going on around you. You need to have the sword of God so that you can stand. It's your offensive weapon to say, this is what God says. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. This is what God says. And finally, the word of God is a seed. It's a seed. Luke chapter 8 and verse 11. Luke 8 and verse 11. 
So the word of God guides me, it lights my path, it feeds me, it brings life, it prepares me for the battles of life. It reveals the living Lord in every book. J.B. Fowler said, Christ is the crimson thread that holds all the scriptures together. And so listen, if you would, to this description of the word of God. In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, he's the bronze serpent lifted up. In Deuteronomy, he's the promised prophet. In Joshua, he is the unseen captain. In Judges, he is my deliverer. In Ruth, he's my heavenly kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, he is the promised king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he is the restorer of the nation. In Esther, he is my advocate. In Job, my redeemer. In Psalms, he is my all in all. In Proverbs, he's my pattern. In Ecclesiastes, he's my goal. In the Song of Solomon, he's my beloved. In the prophets, he is the coming prince of peace. In Matthew, he is the king. In Mark, he's the servant. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he's the risen, seated, and sending one. In the letters, he is indwelling and infilling. And in Revelation, he is returning and reigning. Let me ask you something. In light of that book revealing that Jesus to us, how in the world could we keep from singing? Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kent. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.